This is the Green Street News, the environmental health show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and what you need to know to protect yourself and your family. Welcome back. Over the last century, modern chemistry has brought us some amazing products and materials, things that tend to defy nature. But as we apparently have to learn over and over again, improving on nature always has a cost somewhere down the line. Sometimes it's the environment, sometimes it's our own health, and sometimes it's both. On today's show, we'll talk with a scientist whose job it is to research the chemicals in products we buy and use every day, since the government seems unable to do it. That story and Patty with the Week's headlines, all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. All right, Patty, so what happened this week in the world of environmental health? Anything good? As always, no, but this first one is about cryptocurrency mining, which we haven't talked about for a while on this show, but it is still very active and very problematic from an environmental health perspective. This was actually written in a publication called Energy Portal. Anyway, residents of Carbon County, Pennsylvania, were shocked to learn that the local Panther Creek power plant plans to burn tires to fuel its on-site cryptocurrency mining operation. The power plant, which was acquired by Stronghold Digital Mining in 2021, has already received several violations related to unpermitted air pollution. So now they're going to burn tires in addition to Well, we know all about this, right? So tire-derived fuel, a byproduct of burning tires, is used as energy in turbines to generate electricity for the cryptocurrency mining farm. Stronghold Digital Mining has submitted a permit proposal to the state's Department of Environmental Protection seeking approval to use up to 15% of tires in its fuel mix. However, neighboring residents and environmental organizations have expressed concerns about the health hazards associated with burning tires. They release harmful air pollutants such as polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and volatile organic compounds. These pollutants are known to be carcinogens and can have serious health consequences. Open tire fires also emit particulates, carbon monoxide, sulfur oxides, and nitrogen oxides, which are harmful to both human health and the environment. Disposing of waste tires has long been an environmental concern. Burning, burying, and grinding tires all have their own ramifications. The emissions from tire burning are shown to be extremely toxic to human health and mutagenic, meaning that they can cause genetic mutations in future generations. This is a really terrible idea. Yeah, it's... I I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do with used tires, but grinding them up and putting them on an athletic field is not a good idea. Burning them is not a good idea. And I remember you telling they tried to put them, they tried to make artificial reefs with tires. Right. And they had to pull them all out again because right. it was killing it. It was, it was a huge operation, hugely expensive operation in the first place to dump all these tires. And then they had to like literally remove them because they were so toxic. I mean, they literally just rendered that area of the ocean a dead zone. But in this case, they're going to have increased air pollution in the area around the plant. You know, they have one of these in New York State at one of the power plants. It's interesting that these cryptocurrency mining operations actually take over these old coal power plants because they need so much energy. It's unbelievable amount. You know, crypto mining is in so energy intensive. It's just it's yeah. critical if they're going to continue that they find greener energy sources 
because this is insanity. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah. Okay, what else you got? Okay, single-use plastic production is a poor candidate for subsidies. Hello. <laughs> okay. All right, this was actually in the Buffalo News. A company that wants to build a 13,000-square-foot plastics manufacturing plant on a two-acre parcel of vacant industrial land in the town of Lockport said that they were requesting $300,000 in tax breaks and $300,000 in state incentives for a plant that would make single-use plastic items and PVC pipes you gotta be kidding. of all things. These people are not re- they're not listening to Green Street News no. or they would never try this. <laughs> it dropped the PVC plans after complaints from environmentalists and local residents. Yeah. But even without the PVC, this still seems like a heavy environmental price to pay for 20 jobs over three years. Gee 20. And they want hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax breaks. $600,000 they're looking for. 300000 in tax breaks, 300000 in state incentives. Even leaving the tax breaks out of the question, it's ridiculous, ridiculous to be asking for this for 20 jobs that they're going to provide. And their job's making single-use plastic. That's exactly right. The idea of adding more single-use plastics to a world that's already choked with this stuff is at the very least regressive. Okay. The plastics plant attorney dismissed the idea that the plant could produce fumes that would harm either residents or workers, but it is well documented that plastic causes human harm at every stage of its life cycle. A March report led by Boston College and Australia's Minderu Foundation and researched by 50 scientists outlined this harm, including the toxic chemical leakage that occurs when plastic is heated, even at low levels in microwaves. Plastics are made from fossil fuels and cause greenhouse gas emissions at every stage of their life cycle. In 2020, the industry's global carbon footprint was 1.3 billion metric tons, making it inevitable that we'll be dealing with plastic pollution for decades to come. I I say forever because plastic lasts forever. Don't you love it when attorneys attorneys for these companies get up and assert, oh, this is 100% safe? Absolutely. They must know, right? They're attorneys. Of course. I mean, come on. Who are they trying to kid here? All right. The next one is about burgers and fries with a side of PFAS. It's about this new report from Momovation. Uh, that found evidence of PFAS chemicals in food packaging, including McDonald's, Starbucks, and KFC, their bucket of fried chicken. M- Momovation is a great organization. It's a Can great just say, little done, nonprofit. They're, they're doing, doing terrific work. super work, yeah. super work. All right, so what did they find? Okay, many of these fast food and fast casual restaurants have announced plans to ban the forever chemicals, and for some, Taco Bell, Wendy's, Sweetgreen, and others, it seems to be working. Partnering with EHN.org, the environmental wellness blog and community had the packaging tested by a U.S. Environmental Protection Agency certified lab and found levels of organic fluorine ranging from 10 parts per million to 469 parts per million. That's how they test for PFAS, right? You're looking for organic fluorines. It's the best way is to look for organic fluorine because it's a strong indicator of per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, mm-hmm. which have been linked to everything from cancer to birth defects to lower vaccine effectiveness. EHN, which is Environmental Health News, partially funded the testing, and Pete Myers, the chief scientist of EHN, which publishes Environmental Health News, reviewed the findings. The report builds on previous fast food packaging testing and EHN.org and Momovation's growing library of consumer products tested for evidence of PFAS, including contact lenses, 
pasta and tomato sauces, sports bras, tampons, dental floss, electrolytes, and butter wrappers. You know, this is work that the government ought to be doing. This is this is why we pay our taxes. Without to have question. the government test these things and find, you know, the presence of cancer-causing chemicals. Where's the FDA? We're going to be talking about that today in our show. Sleep on the job. Asleep on the job. But it also comes on the heels of an EHN investigation, what we know about PFAS in our food, that found due to inadequate testing and a lack of regulation, we're all eating PFAS. PFAS has previously been found in food packaging such as pizza boxes, sandwich wrappers, french fry containers, and popcorn bags. The chemicals are really excellent at resisting grease and stains. They're either added intentionally or they can contaminate the packaging unintentionally. People who eat more takeout, fast food, and pizza often have higher levels of PFAS in their bodies than people who regularly cook at home, Mm -hmm. according to a 2019 study. Many fast food restaurants, including Burger King, Tim Hortons, Popeyes, Chick-fil-A, Starbucks, McDonald's, Panera, Sweetgreen, Taco Bell, and Wendy's, have committed to phasing out PFAS in their packaging. But Momovation tested some packaging from all of these restaurants and did not detect evidence of PFAS in Taco Bell or Wendy's wrappers. Hmm. I wonder how they can do it and other companies can't. Well, they can. They're just paying more for their packaging. They're paying for fiber or paper bowls mm-hmm. and wrapping paper, right? Yeah. That Other- they can wrap burgers in and so on. Yeah. Um, it costs a little bit more, but you can get these products that are PFOS free, certified PFOS free. Yeah. They're just a little more expensive. So these companies have decided we're going to spend a little bit more money and not be serving our customers this incredibly dangerous chemical with every single meal they buy. And that's how the market is supposed to work, right? A demand for some a new product, and that's when new products come along. Okay, that's it. what else you got? Well, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this report that came out in, uh, in a radiology magazine. They reported a case of a 40-year-old Italian man who presented with an intramuscular schwannoma, which is a, a tumor, in his left thigh, which coincided with the area where he habitually stored his smartphone. An ultrasound examination revealed this well-defined encapsulated lesion within the muscle. But while we can't establish a definitive causal relationship between the patient's smartphone storage habit and the development of this tumor, we speculate that the habitual storage location may have potentially acted as a risk or predisposing factor. Yeah, this same thing happens with women who store their smartphone, you know, in their bra. Correct. Or their sports top. And and with men who put their cell phones in their back pockets and a higher incidence of colon cancer. Mm-hmm. So it really underscores the need for further research on the potential health risks associated with how you carry your smartphone, considering the widespread prevalence in today's yeah. world. Yeah. yeah really, really important that you do not hold that phone or carry that phone or store that phone against your body, which right. means never in a pocket and yeah. certainly don't talk with it, uh, you know, it's plastered against your head. Okay. Anything else? Yeah. There's one other thing, and that's this new chemical that's really a cousin of BPA, and it's actually called BADGE which stands for bisphenol A diglycidyl ether. 
and it has gotten far less attention than BPA, although studies show that it has equal endocrine-disrupting potential, which means that it interferes with the proper functioning of yeah. your hormones, as yeah. well as other possible harmful impacts, including liver and kidney cancer. There are currently zero workplace exposure limits on badge, leaving the door open for potentially harmful worker exposures and sketchy or even false advertising about the safety of construction woodworking and art supplies yeah, by the way say, i didn't i didn't mention it's the predominant chemical used in epoxy resins okay. which is ubiquitous on construction sites providing strong durable corrosion resistant adhesion but it's also found in consumer products such as glues you know boat repair um, products in powdered coatings in automotive and other metal finishing and also in can linings this is the uh, the old regrettable substitute situation, yeah. right? Where they've, yeah. they replace one chemical with yeah. another, and it could be just as bad or even worse than the one that it's replacing. Well, clearly it's just as bad. It has shown these endocrine-disrupting effects. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Green Street News is a project of our nonprofit organization, Grassroots Environmental Education, on the web at grassrootsinfo.org. Grassroots is a science-based organization bringing fact-based solutions to decision-makers across the country and empowering individuals to act as catalysts for change in their own communities. From pesticides to plastic pollution, fracking to fluoride and synthetic turf to wireless radiation, Grassroots covers a wide array of issues and you can find fact sheets, videos and other information about these and other environmental health issues on our website, grassrootsinfo.org. If you heard Patty's news item about cell phones causing tumors where people are carrying the phones and want to know more about the radiation that is emitted by all wireless devices, you might want to check out the web pages at grassrootsinfo.org. Or if you want to learn more about current legislation that would dramatically increase the number of cell towers and wireless antennas everywhere in America, you'll find that information at our sister website, americansforresponsibletech.org. Let me give you those two websites again. It's grassrootsinfo.org for all kinds of information about environmental health and americansforresponsibletech.org for information on wireless radiation and the pending legislation in Washington, D.C. You might want to call your legislators about this. And now, back to our show. Very few of us think much about the chemicals that are in the products we use every day. If I told you that the product you were using contained sodium hexametaphosphate, propylene glycol, trisodium phosphate, sodium laurate sulfate, sodium gluconate, and sodium saccharin, would you know I was talking about toothpaste? Probably not. We expect that there are people in our government agencies who know what all those things are and who regulate the kinds of chemicals that go into the products we use every day. We depend on them to make sure that anything that's really hazardous stays out. But science is constantly evolving, and as scientists learn more about which chemicals are actually harmful, it's sometimes hard to get harmful chemicals out if they are already in the marketplace, in the products that are on the shelves. Government regulation can take years and years, as we have seen with chemicals that have been banned in other countries around the world, but still are permitted here. 
So maybe the key is not with government regulators or asking companies just to do the right thing, but to use retailers to put some pressure on manufacturers to clean up their products. So that's one of the reasons that we focus on retailers is because they have enormous market power in terms of what they ask of their suppliers to get their suppliers to change the formulations of their products and move away from chemicals of high concern towards safer products. That's Sherry Peel, Senior Project Manager at Toxic Free Future. This nonprofit organization based in Washington State has developed a report card of the 50 largest retailers and restaurants and given them grades based on their efforts to get toxic chemicals out of the products they sell. The, the retailer report card started in 2016. Uh, there have been five retailer report cards put out. Um, so what this does is it takes the largest retailers, there are also a number of restaurants, so 50 of them in the U.S. and Canada, and it looks at whether or not they have a chemicals policy that commits to the reduction of chemicals of high concern in their products, their packaging, their manufacturing, if they have private label products, um, and also their operations. So that would be like bisphenols in receipt paper, or what are they using to clean the floors in their stores if they're brick and mortar. It looks at transparency. Are their suppliers telling the retailer what's in the products that the retailer is selling? For example, Walmart and Target are two that are doing a particularly good job of this. So, so we divide products into uh, formulated products or articles. This is a division that comes out of European Union legislation. So a formulated product is, you can think about it practically speaking, is it's something that's probably a liquid or a gel and is probably going down to go down the drain unless it's paint, in which case it's going to dry. Um, but it's something that the chemical composition of the product is what gives it its value, as opposed to an article, which is like a table, where you could have a table made of metal or of wood and it's still a sol solid thing that you can set things on and that's what gives it its value, as opposed to you know shampoo or toothpaste, where it's really the chemical composition that's important. And the reason that we do that is because the supply chains for formulated products tend to be shorter and because of the nature of formulated products, the manufacturers are more likely to know the chemical composition because that's what gives it its value, as opposed to an article where the supply chains are likely to be, not necessarily, but likely to be longer if you think about a computer. And because the chemicals aren't what give the thing its value, manufacturers all along the supply chain are less likely to know exactly what the thing is made of, especially once you get to the end. So it's easier to focus on formulated products. So what Walmart and Target both do is they strongly encourage their suppliers to report to a third party all of the ingredients in their products. And then they are able to uh, screen those for chemicals of high concern. We've got a reference list of chemicals of high concern. Actually, what Walmart does is they calculate what's called their chemical footprint, which is the volume of their chemicals of high concern over all of their formulated products for a year. And they actually, in 2017, set a goal um, that was a 10% reduction goal by 2022, and they actually just beat that. This year, they reported a 20% reduction from their 2017 baseline, which translates into 44 million pounds of chemicals of high concern that they've reduced. 
44 million pounds is a lot of toxic chemicals out of the product stream, but it's really just a drop in the bucket when you look at the overall number of chemicals. The EPA defines high production volume chemicals, HPV chemicals, as those produced or imported into the United States in quantities of 1 million pounds per year. And according to the National Institutes of Health, there are about 4,600 different chemicals on that list. 4,600 chemicals being produced in quantities of 1 million pounds or more. So Walmart has a good start with 44, but it's just scratching the surface. So what we do is we look at chemicals through a hazard lens. So are the chemicals inherently hazardous? And for that, what we use, it's a chemical screening methodology that's called the Green Screen for Safer Chemicals. It was developed by Clean Production Action, which is a nonprofit that I used to work for, based on a framework that EPA had actually developed. And so what that does is it looks at 18 different endpoints for chemicals. So you think about how could a chemical be hazardous? What does that mean? And so is it a carcinogen? So does it cause cancer? Is it a mutagen? So does it cause mutations? Is it a reproductive toxicant damaging the reproductive systems? Those are all human endpoints. Is it an endocrine disruptor? But then also, does it have aquatic toxicity? Uh, and then there are some, is it a skin sensitizer? There are, again, 18 of these that we look at. And so what green screen does is it looks at all of these different endpoints and then there's a mechanism that rolls all of those scores up into a benchmark one through four. And so a benchmark one is what we call a chemical of high concern. So that is, in short, it's a carcinogen, a mutagen, or a reproductive toxicant, or a persistent bioaccumulative human toxicant, or something that is equivalent of high concern, so that's where you would get a neurotoxicant or an endocrine disruptor, or something that breaks down into one of those, because you could have a chemical that once it's out in the world, breaks down into something that is more toxic than it was initially when it's put into a product. So that's the definition. And there are thousands of chemicals that have been shown to meet that definition. Chemicals in the products we buy and use every day, or in the food we eat, the water we drink, or the air we breathe, all end up in our bodies, potentially interfering with normal biological functions. Some get in the way of our endocrine system. Others impact reproductive or digestive health. One way in which scientists have been looking at the chemicals that linger in the body is to look at breast milk. Breast milk has been used as an easy way to look at toxic chemicals that build up in humans since the 1970s. Um, the World Health Organization has been monitoring it since then. And so the story for this particular study that we just put out this year is a story of flame retardants. And so PBDEs, which I just mentioned, the class of flame retardants, they've been widely used. They're particularly used in electronics especially electronics casings, uh, so the plastic casing that goes around your computer or your TV. So they started being used in the early 1970s, and Sweden has been banking breast milk, again, as a, as a way to measure uh, toxics in people since 1972. So in 1999, there was a study that came out of Sweden where they measured PVDEs in breast milk and they went back and they looked at from uh, the samples from 1972 through 1997 and they saw an exponential increase. And at that point, Sweden actually began putting in some controls on, on PVDEs in products and began to see a decline. 
But that study sort of raised some alarm bells around the world. And so other people started uh, looking at PPDs in their own breast milk. And so in the United States, the findings were that the levels were actually 10 to 100 times higher than they found in Sweden. And so that was in 2003. And well, in 2004, the manufacturers voluntarily pulled two of the type, there are three main commercial formulations. They're called penta-octa and deca. It refers to the number of bromines on the molecule, five, eight, and 10. And so they pulled Penta and Octa, which were the most obviously toxic um, from use, but they continued to use DECA. Sadly, government regulation or even voluntary efforts are not always enough to completely stop the use of these chemicals. There can be a long supply chain and product can sit on store shelves for a while before it gets purchased. There's also something scientists call regrettable substitution. That's when manufacturers replace a toxic chemical with another chemical that hasn't been as well studied, but turns out to be just as toxic or more toxic than the one it replaced. In 2007, here in Washington State, we put in place the first ban on DECA in television and computer housings. And then in 2013, other, other states also began to put in place bans. And then in 2013, um, manufacturers voluntarily stopped using DECA. So DECA was essentially phased out in 2013. So then several years later, we began wondering, okay, well, what's going on now in the electronics housings? So uh, Toxic Free Future bought a bunch of TVs, drilled some holes, um, and sent it off for testing to see what flame retardants were being used and found some DECA, actually, that was, it was out of compliance, but then also a number of other brominated flame retardants were being used, which were what we call a regrettable substitute, because these are, again, benchmark one chemicals of high concern using that green screen framework again. So they're just as toxic. <laughs> so then this breast milk study was a follow-up. And so the question was, okay, this is what's being used. Is it also building up in breast milk? And the answer was yes. So this study, um, there were 50 women in the greater Seattle area who donated breast milk samples and PBDEs were found in 100% of them, but at levels that were 70% lower than the 2003 samples, which were also in the same geographic area. So we see that it's still there but that the phase-out has had an impact. So we can impact the levels of toxic chemicals in our bodies through legislation and by phasing these chemicals out of products. I should say that while the presence of these toxic chemicals in breast milk is very concerning, that there's still strong scientific evidence that breast milk is still the ideal food for babies and we still strongly recommend breastfeeding uh, whenever possible. Firefighters have a dangerous job, and anything that can protect them is generally good. Last week on the show, we talked about PFAS chemicals and the protective equipment they use. But that's not the only worry. The chemical foam used to fight fires contains PFAS chemicals, a whole class of chemicals linked to cancer in humans. The problem was those chemicals were part of the military specification, or MILSPEC, for firefighting foam. 
So the military specification before required essentially PFAS in firefighting foam used at airports, which then any airport that was regulated by the FAA had to use the mil spec. And so getting that mil spec changed has been has been very important. We worked with Clean Production Action to create a certification for firefighting foam that's called green screen certified. And all of the ingredients are assessed for safety so that people can confidently move away from PFAS in firefighting foam and move towards something safer. What is key right now is making sure that safer alternatives are used. Because what we want is not just to move away from the bad, we want to move towards safer products. And you need to ensure that things are safer. Um, so that means it can't be like PFAS free. It has to, all of the ingredients need to be assessed for safety. And again, we use the green screen uh, methodology to assess safety. Sherry Peel, Senior Project Manager at Toxic Free Future, on the web at toxicfreefuture.org. That's going to do it for our show today. Special thanks to our guest, Sherry Peel, our news editor, Ellen Weiniger, our engineer, Josh Lyman, associate producer, Toby Ziegler, our social media director, Donna Moss, and our marketing director, Sam Seaborn. I'm Doug Wood. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening. 